Okay, uh, we have seen in our first session that the covenant with Noah is really God upholding his commitment in a, in a covenant that was made earlier. So we want to have a look now at Genesis 1 and see the covenant that God made with creation. Uh, many people say, well, there's no covenant in Genesis 1 and 2. 1 to 3, because the word covenant doesn't appear there. But this approach is is inadequate because <clears throat> you don't have to use the word to get the idea across. Let me give you an example. Think of Isaiah 66, verse 1. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Well, if you listen to that verse, it's shouting kingship, isn't it? But the word king doesn't appear. So if you were doing one of your famous lexical studies, studying the Hebrew word king, MLK, then you would have missed it. You would have missed this verse because the word king doesn't occur there, but it's shouting kingship. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my Footstool. I'm the king of the whole world. That's what this verse is saying. You don't have to have the word itself. Let me give you a couple of other examples. If you look through the New Testament, you will see that faith and repentance are actually two sides of the same coin. So in the apostles' teaching, repentance involves turning away from your sin, but they would never have conceived of a person turning away from sin who wasn't at the same time turning in faith to Jesus Christ. And at the same time, faith involves repentance. So no true faith, there is no true faith in Jesus Christ without at the same time turning away from sin. I don't know if you've ever been involved in arguments or discussions with people who believe in baptismal regeneration and you get certain verses in Acts where it mentions, you know, uh, repentance. And uh, this is part of the problem there because they don't realize that every time a New Testament author mentions faith, they automatically imply repentance. Every time they mention repentance, they're automatically thinking of faith at the same time. They're two sides of the same coin. Another example is Torah and covenant. The word Torah, the Hebrew word Torah is translated law. This is not really a very good translation. The Hebrew word simply means direction or instruction. And it's not, it has, it's, it's not really at all like a modern law code because it, a modern law code is, um, impersonal instruct, in, impersonal commands given from an authority on high. This is a father who has a covenant relationship with Israel as his children. He's giving them direction for their lives, instruction for their lives. And that gives you a totally different view of what's happening. But nonetheless, every time you mention the word Torah, you also are thinking of covenant because the, the Torah is the instruction given in the covenant. And every time you use the word covenant, you're also thinking of Torah at the same time. So these ideas, uh, we don't have to have the word uh, covenant in fact, there are many ways in which this is communicated. Uh, for example, the covenant formula that occurs frequently in the Bible is, I will be their God and they will be my people. If you 
There's a wonderful book by Elmer Martins called God's Design, and he shows throughout the whole of the Bible that this is a this is always referring to the to our relationship with God in in a covenant. So whenever you see that expression, I will be their God and they will be my people, it's a covenant that it's talking about, and that jumps out the page at you. Uh, so you don't have to have the word. And in fact, if Moses had written, had used the expression to cut a covenant in Genesis 1, it, it would have been totally anachronistic because uh, this refers to an ancient Near Eastern... He, this is, this is a, a communication that is based on an ancient Near Eastern custom that didn't come along till later. So if that expression was used, it would, it would be anachronistic. In the end, exegesis must show. An exegesis based not only on the cultural data and the linguistic data, but, a, but that is in touch with the literary structures and the overall story can show whether or not there is a covenant. So those are the four things that I emphasize in doing exegesis. We have to understand the text according to the cultural setting, that is, the setting of the time in which it was communicated, according to the language of that time, following the, following the uh, literary structures, the shape of the text is very important. Things are often communicated by the shape, the literary structure, that aren't communicated in individual sentences. Let me give you a quick illustration of that. Isaiah 46 talks about the, the fall, the downfall of, uh, of, of, about the failure of Babylon's idols. The failure of Babylon's idols. Chapter 47 is the fall of Babylon as a civilization. And if you put those two together, what God is saying is it's because their civilization rests on a false religion that that civilization cannot endure. So there's something said by the literary structure that isn't actually communicated in an individual sentence there. But it's absolutely true, and that's why the U.S. as a civilization will fall because it's worshipping idols, false gods. So, it's very simple. Canada will go with it, so don't worry. <laughs> We've been worshipping idols a lot longer. All right. Uh, one of the things I do in the book is I give a survey of different interpretations in the past concerning the image of God. We're going to focus here on verses 26 to 28. And God said, let us make man or mankind or humanity in our image according to our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the animals and over all the earth. Or maybe we should read over all the creeping things of the earth. Sorry, and over all the earth and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. Verse 27. And God created man in his image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And he blessed them. And uh, God blessed them and said to them, God said to them, be fruitful and, in, and multiply and infill the earth and uh, subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky 
and over all the creatures that creep along the earth. So um, uh, we have to be, I have to be a little bit humble here because uh, a lot of ink has been spilled on the image of God. And we need to, uh, S. Lewis Johnson was talking about Romans 5 and he said it's, uh, the landscape is wild and rugged, um, dotted with booby traps and the graves of the interpreters who have fallen into them. So I sort of feel like that. The traditional view, the traditional view of the image of God, uh, doesn't really seek to look at the text in terms of its cultural setting, in terms of the linguistic data. It, the traditional view approaches it with a theological argument. And the argument goes like this. Uh, God is a spirit. So we quote the New Testament. God is a spirit, John chapter 4. Or we could actually quote the Old Testament, De- Deuteronomy 4. Moses says, you saw no form when you were on the mountain. So God is, is, a, is, a, is a spirit being. Therefore, when God made man in his image, it has nothing to do with the physical part of man. It must have to do with other things like like our personality, our emotions, mind and will, or our spirituality. So that's the logic behind the, behind the traditional view. So the, I, I, I find this view inadequate because it is not the result of grammatical and historical interpretation of the text and does not come to grips with the fact that image, the, he, the Hebrew word for image, normally refers to a physical statue. and cannot be exegetically validated as the, this traditional view cannot be exegetically validated as the author's intended meaning. This is what Dr. Wellam was emphasizing. What did God intend, what did Moses intend for the first readers to understand? And how would the first readers have understood this text? I, I would say, here's my view, I would say that uh, at the very latest, this rolled off the presses in the plains of Moab as they were about ready to get into the land of Canaan. So we're talking around the 14th or 13th century BC, however you date these things. So we want to understand what this text means in that cultural setting and according to the language of that time. And when you get to know me better, you will see that I always begin with a literary structure. Uh, maybe we could, Chris, blow this up to 150% or something that you can see uh, in the book I discuss the literary structure of the creation story. As you know, there are seven paragraphs. And um, the pattern on the sixth day is completely different from the pattern in all of the other paragraphs because something special is happening here. We see in verses 24 and 25 the creation of the animals. And we see in verses 26 to 31, the creation of mankind. We can move up a little. There are two parts. In verse 26, we see the decision, the divine decision to create man and then to give him a certain role. Did you notice that? First of all, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And then secondly to give him a particular role. I've translated this, so that they may rule. 
Then in verses 27 and 28, we see the execution of that decision. God creates man in verse 27, and he proclaims his role in verse 28. Then we have the food regulations, and we have the conclusion with the day notation. It's interesting that I want you to see that in the paragraph structure, the execution of the decision is patterned exactly like the decision. There are two parts to the decision, and the execution has two parts to it. Do you see that in the text? So there's the decision to make man, there's the decision to give him a certain role, and when this is executed, first there is the creation, and then there is the proclamation of his role. So those two parts match. Now, I don't, we're going to look at two grammatical issues before the postprandial snooze strikes. Um, the sequence of verbs in verse 26 is inadequately represented in most modern translations. Uh, the first verb in the divine speech is a command form in Hebrew and is correctly translated, let us make, in all of the English versions. The second verb in the sequence could be understood as a command form or as a future indicative. What is important is that according to the grammars of Hebrew, this sequence marks purpose or result. So we should translate it, let us make man so that they may rule. You know, I don't, I personally do not understand why this, we don't see this in our English translations because this is something that every student knows in elementary Hebrew. Uh, so it's not, you know, as if I'm coming along as a great scholar or something and see, and, but, uh, you, all you need to have is one semester of Hebrew and you can make, you can, uh, you can make this observation. For some reason, uh, the translations fail to represent this properly. It's very important because the ruling is not the image itself. We rule because we are in the image of God. Do you see that? First, God wanted to make us in his image or as his image so that they may rule. This is the purpose or the result of the ruling. It is not the ruling itself. These are important points, aren't they? Secondly, another grammatical issue concerns the clause patterns in verse 27. This verse contains three clauses or sentences. I'm sorry to have to talk about grammar, but, you know, um, Paul did. So he said uh, the promise was made to the seed and not to seeds. So he was uh, basing his argument on the singular as opposed to the plural, so I think I have a good tradition behind me. There are three sentences. Number one, God created man in his image. That's the end of the first sentence. Sentence number two, in the image of God, he created him. Sentence number three, male and female, he created them. Now, I don't want to go into a lot of discussion of the grammar here, but all I want to say is that uh, you can see from your English translations that uh, the word order is different in the last two sentences. 
In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. This different word order means that these two sentences are not carrying the narrative forward. They're stopping the narrative to give us two comments. In other words, the first sentence is, uh, is telling us what is happening in the narrative. The last two clauses or sentences are footnotes. Footnote one, uh, God made them in his image. And footnote two, God made them male and female. So he, the author digresses from the narrative to give us two comments or two footnotes. Uh, we could move up here, Chris, to, I'm on page 21. There you go, back, there you go, that's perfect. So um, these, two, these two footnotes show us that the creation of man entails male and female genders, and B, that mankind resembles God in some way, okay? By pausing to stress these two things, the author prepares us for the two commands given to man in the very next verse. There are actually five verbs there. Be fruitful, increase, and fill the earth. And then there are two more verbs, subdue and rule. But I don't think it's too difficult for you to see that those five verbs fall into two categories. The first category is being fruitful. The second category is ruling. Can you all see that? So, the footnotes prepare us for what happens in the next verse. The literary, this literary presentation is, is what we call a chiasm. The word chiasm comes from the letter in the Greek alphabet known as chi, sometimes pronounced chi in America, which is shaped like an X. The top half of the letter has a mirror image in the bottom half. So the bottom half is a mirror image of the top half. And if, for example, a literary piece has four parts and the first matches the last while the second matches the third, the result is a mirror image, a chiasm. Go to the next little diagram there, Chris, please. Yeah, we have it right here. One of the things I'm going to tell you about Hebrew literature is that Hebrews always repeat themselves. This is why uh, many people in the Western world find the Bible so boring. But actually, it's a fantastic way of communicating. Let me take a moment to tell you how Hebrew literature works. When a Hebrew is communicating, they will strike up a conversation on a topic and they will go around that, they will go around that topic of conversation. Then they will shut that conversation down and they will start another conversation over here. At first you think it's on a different topic, but then you realize it's on the same topic from a different angle, from a different perspective, from a different point of view. It's like listening to music with a stereo when you have a left speaker and you have a right speaker. Now here's the question for the postprandial audience. Does... Does the music coming out of the two speakers, is the music the same or is it different? Same, different. So we have... It. Now, contrary to our Aristotle, you're both right. Uh, it's both the same and it's different, okay? In one way, it's the same music, but in another way, it's slightly different so that you actually get that stereo effect 
Well, that's what's happening in Hebrew literature, you see. You go, one conversation is the left speaker, the next conversation is the right speaker. When you put them together, you have a stereo idea, a three-dimensional thought, a holographic thought. See? Our, our Greek and Roman, our culture is based on our Greek and Roman heritage. And so, uh, we're, we're all followers of Aristotle and his uh, rectilinear logic, because the way our literature works is we start at A and we work our way by syllogisms to point B. And so everything is is in a straight line, but that's not the way Hebrew literature works. And that's why you have Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They're different stories about the creation, and when you hear them together, you get a stereo idea of what the creation was all about. You see, the liberals never ask themselves, well, how do Hebrews... What are the Hebrews' own rules for telling stories? They analyze ancient Eastern texts using modern and Western methods of literary analysis. That's why they're dead wrong. All right. So the first thing is every Hebrew is going to talk about something twice. So here you see, here you see A in the image of God, B male and female, B be fruitful and increase in number, A subdue it. I hope you can see that the ruling is connected to the image and being fruitful is connected to being male and female. I hope you see that. Uh, This is a very important point that I'm making. Why am I making this point? Because a guy like Karl Barth tried to tell us that the image of God had to do with being made as male and female, you see. And this is totally out to lunch. It has, uh, he, he doesn't know how to read a Hebrew text. That's his biggest problem. And, uh, what you have is two footnotes that prepare us for the, for the two things that they want, that the two commands. We, we are fruitful because we're made as male and female, and we rule because we're the divine image. And there's no necessary connection between, uh, having two genders and the image of God. You see, they're connected this way, not the way Bart wanted to connect them. Is that clear? Okay. We are now in a position to explain the meaning of the first sentence in verse 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The exegetical microscope will be focused on three things, the ancient, well, four things, well, three things, the ancient Near Eastern background, the meaning of the noun's image and likeness, and the exact force of the prepositions in and according to. Now, in biblical revelation, God communicates in the culture and language of the people. Yet, in employing language people understand, he also fills the terms with new meaning. The key to correct interpretation is, therefore, to compare and contrast the biblical text and the surrounding cultures. One must notice not only the similarities between the Bible and the ancient Near Eastern background, but also the differences, because they show the new meaning being revealed by God. I want to illustrate this. This, this is, what I'm saying is fundamental to all communication. The only way that you can communicate to another person is to start where that other person is. And, and then, you, t- you take them to where you want them to be. But you have to start with their universe of discourse. 
Let's think about the tabernacle. When I was a boy in Sunday school, the teacher emphasized that uh, they had to follow, carefully follow the pattern that God had shown Moses on the mount. And I thought that was because the tabernacle was a unique building. There was no other building like it. But uh, so I, so I was deeply distressed when I started to study the ancient Near East. I have a book at home that has, uh, it'll, I can show you the floor plans of over a hundred temples from the ancient Near East and they're all like the tabernacle. They all have an out, outer courtyard. You pass through an altar of sacrifice. There's a building with two rooms, an outer room, the holy place, and an inner room, the holy of holies. So you see the first time that the Israelites saw the tabernacle, they said, aha, I know what this is, you see. But there's always a tiny little difference, you see. In the, in the land of Canaan, they worshipped uh, Baal or Baal, uh, the, the storm god, the god of uh, lightning and thunder, the god of uh, rain, and the rain causes the crops to grow, so it brings the fertility. They, they actually thought of the rain as Baal semen fertilizing the earth. And they engaged in what they called uh, sympathetic magic, which means if we get things going downstairs, the gods will get interested upstairs and the land will become fertile. That's why they practiced sexual orgies as part of their worship to get the gods interested upstairs. And then finally the land would be fertile. So what would happen if you saw a Canaanite temple? Well, you'd have the outer courtyard, you'd have the altar of sacrifice, you'd go through the holy place, and when you got into the holy of holies, you would see a statue that represented the, the force of nature that they were worshiping. What happens when you go into the tabernacle? Well, same thing. The courtyard, the altar of sacrifice, the holy place. Ah, when you get into the holy of holies, what do you find? First of all, there's nothing there because uh, God is invisible and uh, he's already made his image, so you can't make an image of him. The second thing that you see there is a little box that's what the word ark means. We saw that earlier. There's a little box, and what's in the box? The Ten Commandments, right? The Ten, the ten Words. What the, you see what God is saying to the people? You, you can't manipulate me with sympathetic magic. If you want the good life, you have to come my way. Ethics determines the future, not magic. So this is how God communicates in the Bible. He always does this. He does this in the Old Testament. He does this in the New Testament. If I had another hour, we could talk about the doctrine of reconciliation and take the word propitiation and show you that in, in the culture of Paul, this was used for a celestial bribe that you offered the gods to avert their jealousy of people who were successful in life. Well, how could you use a word like that to communicate the gospel? But the apostles did. But they made they showed that it was not a capricious God trying to avert his jealousy, but he was offering the sacrifice necessary to uh, turn away his own outrage against our moral rebellion. So, when we read the Bible, we have to do two things. We, we have to compare it with the contemporary documents and then contrast it. The biggest problem in the last 150 years is that the liberals have seen the similarities and the conservatives have seen the differences. 
and neither one has appreciated the other. But we have to look at the similarities and the differences. Paul Dion has produced one of the most careful studies of the ancient Near Eastern background to the image of God. And I will... What does this mean? Well, the descriptive... The, 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 the Egyptian king was called, as a descriptive title, the living statue of such and such and God from 1630 B.C. onwards. So the first point is that before any word of the Bible was ever written, the Egyptian, the, the Israelites were living in a culture where the Egyptian king was considered to be the living image of God, the statue of the God that they worshipped. In Egyptian thinking, the king is the image of God because he is the son of God. Very literally, they believed that the king was the son of God. The emphasis or stress is not on physical appearance. For example, a male king could be the image of a female goddess or vice versa. Rather, it's the behavior of the king reflects the behavior of the god. The image reflects the character traits of the god. The the image reflects the essential notions of the god. Commonly associated with the image is the notion of conquest and power. A clear example is an inscription inscription from the Karnak Temple marking the triumph of Thutmosis III at Karnak around 1460 BC, which is just before the Exodus. And I'm going to quote from this text. And you don't have to know Egyptian to read these texts. These are all translated into English, all right? So, you are without excuse, as Paul says in Romans 1. He says, I came to let you tread on the Jahis chiefs. So, this is the God speaking to the king. I, the God, came to let you tread on the Jahis chiefs. I spread them under your feet throughout their lands. I let them see your majesty as Lord of light so that you shone before them in my likeness. So the God says to the king, you conquered all those people because you're showing them my likeness. The God Amun-Re, in giving victory to Thutmosis III, calls the king his son at the beginning of this poem. In the 13th century B.C., Pharaoh Ramses II had his image hewn out of rock at the mouth of the Kelb River on the Mediterranean north of Beirut. So this was the ancient version of Mount Rushmore. Uh, And his image, displayed like the presidents at Mount Rushmore, meant that he was the ruler of that territory. In the ancient Near East, since the king is the living statue of the god, he represents the god on earth. He makes the power of the god a present reality. So you can see the idea of uh, divine authority and kingship is quite old. To sum up, the term image of God in the culture and language of the ancient Near East in the 15th or 14th century BC would have communicated two main ideas. Number one, sonship, and number two, rulership. The king is the image of God because he has a relationship to God, to the God, whatever God they worshipped at that time, as the son of God, and a relationship to the world as a ruler 
for that God. In the ancient Near East, these would have been understood as covenant relationships. Um, family relationships are covenantal, and the relationships between king and people are covenantal. So if the king is called the son of God, we're talking about a covenantal relationship. And if the, if a person, if a, if, if you have a king who rules a people, that's also a covenantal relationship. What we are, now, I, what I would say is we ought to assume that the Bible, that the meaning in the Bible is identical to the surrounding culture unless the Bible clearly distinguishes its meaning from the surrounding culture. Okay, we're going to take a quick look at the words likeness and image. Careful and exhaustive studies of the words likeness and image indicate the possible range of meaning. The word likeness may refer to a physical entity, such as the model of the altar King Ahaz sent Uriah the priest in 2 Kings 16. It may also refer to a likeness that is real, yet referentially unspecific or inexact, Isaiah 40, 18. It can, all, it can even be non-referential to express resemblance or relative similarity, Isaiah 13, 4. Ezekiel 1, 26 is instructive since opposite to Genesis 1, 26, which speaks of humanity created in the likeness of God, Ezekiel's vision speaks of God appearing in the likeness of humanity. Either way, God and humanity are morphologically similar. Image, the other word is image, it frequently refers to an object in the real world that can have size, shape, color, material, composition, and value. The image erected by King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3 is a good example. Yet as Psalm 39, 6 and 7 shows, an image can also be abstract and non-concrete. And like the word for likeness, image can simply be an imprint etched on a wall. Ezekiel 23, 14 and 15. What is important for Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is the use of the words likeness and image in the Telfecaria inscription. This is inscribed on a large statue of King Hadouyithi of Gozan, a city in what is now eastern Syria. This was an Akkadian Aramaic bilingual text from the 10th or 9th century BC. So this is really amazing. Um, and if we had the cable, I could have shown you the pictures of this, but it's a, it's a statue of the king. On the lower part of his robe is an inscription in both Akkadian and Aramaic, because those are the two languages in that area. The text is very clearly divided into two paragraphs. In fact, there's a lot, this is very clearly marked. The first paragraph focuses on the role of the king as a supplicant and worshiper of his God and is headed in the Aramaic text by the same word as the Hebrew term for likeness. The second paragraph focuses on the majesty and power of the king in his role in relation to his subjects. This is headed in the Aramaic text by the same word as the Hebrew term for image. While both terms can and do refer to the actual statue, each one has a slightly different nuance or meaning. Notice, 
Likeness has to do with the relationship of the king to his God. Image has to do with the majesty and power and relationship of the king to the, the people, the subjects in his kingdom. Now we've been looking at, we've looked at, uh, we've looked at Egypt, we've looked at Syria, now we're going to Mesopotamia. Uh, and I quote texts there that show that the word image in, in, in Mesopotamia has exactly the same meaning. So what we need to do now, now that we've seen the ancient Near Eastern context, we've looked at the cultural setting of the 14th century BC, we've, lear- we've looked at the language of the 14th century BC and what it means, now we're going to compare and contrast that with the, what we see in the Bible. Uh, given the normal meanings of image and likeness in the cultural and linguist- linguistic setting of the Old Testament, likeness specifies a relationship between God and humans such that Adam, this is the word for Adam, can be described as the Son of God, and image describes a relationship between God and humans such that Adam can be described as a servant king. So what we're seeing here is, although both terms specify the divine human relationship, the first focuses on the human in relation to God, and the second focuses on the human in relation to the rest of the world. These would have been understood in the ancient Near East to be relationships characterized by faithfulness and loyal love, chesed and emeth, which are the two words used in the, in the Old Testament for a covenant relationship. Uh, um, let me just stop to illustrate that for one second. The short, the shortest psalm, anyone know the shortest psalm? 117. Uh, Hallelujah, eth Yahweh kol goyim, shabachuhu eth ha, ha kol umim, ki gevar aleinu chasdo emeth aronailu olam. Praise the Lord, all the peoples. Laud him, all the nations, because his chesed has prevailed over us and his faithfulness is forever. Amen. So this is an, this is the PhD abstract for the whole Psalter. When you write a PhD, mine was 600 pages. I had to summarize it in 300 words, and the University of Toronto would not accept 301. Here it is. It's a hymn. A hymn always has a call to praise and a reason to praise. The first line is calling all the nations to praise God. And what's the second line? It's because God, has, God Yahweh, shows chesed and emeth in his covenant relationships, you see? That's the heart of the whole Psalter right there. God is faithful in covenant relationships. And this is a message that embraces the Gentiles because it's a call to the, the Gentiles are called to worship God for this. Do you see that? Powerful, isn't it? So, in this sense, the divine image describes a covenant relationship between God and humans on the one hand and between humans and the world on the other hand. In describing a divine human relationship, the words in Genesis 1.26 correspond exactly to what we see in this inscription from 1000 BC. 
confirmation of this interpretation uh, comes from other parts of the Bible. Uh, the term likeness indicates that Adam, Adam, has a special relationship to God like that of father and son. This is clearly implied in Genesis 5, verses 1 to 3. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness. You see that? So likeness has to do with generation and with father and son. This can be further supported from later texts. You remember the genealogy in Luke chapter 3? It ends with Adam, and he's called the son of God. But where did Luke get that? It has to come from the Bible, don't you think that? It's not just pulling that out of thin air because he was inspired. He, he got that because he was reading the Bible. Number two, Israel, in, Israel, as we're going to see, inherits the role of Adam and Eve. And Israel, as a nation, is called the Son of God. In Exodus chapter 24, chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. The song at the sea, Exodus 15, pictures Israel as a new Adam entering the promised land as a new Eden. Verse 17 of Exodus 15 describes Israel going into Canaan as if they were going into a mountain sanctuary, and Eden is a mountain sanctuary. If you didn't get that out of Genesis 1 and 2, you should see that in Ezekiel 28. There's always a commentary in the Bible that will help you. The term, secondly, the term image indicates that Adam has a special position and status as a king under God. Humans rule as a result of this royal status. The term to rule in Genesis 1 is particularly true of kings, as we see in Psalm 72, 8. Further confirmation comes from Psalm 8 in which verses 5 to 8 constitute a word-by-word commentary. I believe in expository preaching because David does it. Psalm 8, verses 5 to 8, is a word-by-word commentary on Genesis 1, 26. Let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. Verses 6 to 8, then detail... So he says, you, what is man that you are mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the gods or than God. There's a problem there, but it doesn't really matter today. Uh, that's his way of saying man is made as the image of God. And then as in the next verse says, you made him rule over all the things. So it's, he's following Genesis 1, 26, word by word. The psalm writer shows that he understood image to speak of royal status because the word that he uses to rule is usually used of kings. The phrase to place under his feet is an image associated with kings. We see that in 1 Kings 5.17 in Egyptian texts, like I read to you from Thutmosis III in Phoenician inscriptions and in Assyrian royal texts. In verses 7 and 8, humans rule over the animals. Man rules over the earth. If you notice in Genesis 1, God names everything on the first three days and man names everything on the last three days. 
because God rules in the heavens and man rules on earth. So, uh, when Adam names the animals, he, that's his first work as a king. So, we see similarities, but there are also differences. Correct interpretation requires one to contrast as well as compare the biblical text with the contemporary documents. This is what the liberals don't do. So they end up telling us that, um, they end up basically telling us that Israel borrowed everything from the nations surrounding them. But, uh, when you see, when you see what's actually happening, you have to believe in divine revelation because where did, where did this idea come from? You know, in the tabernacle. Okay? That's, that's not an idea that you find anywhere else in the ancient Near East, is it? That God's invisible, you can't make a statue of him, and uh, ethics determines the future, not sympathetic magic, you see? God actually spoke to Moses. So the, the, the liberals need a tap on the head because uh, these things should be obvious to them. Now, what happens when we compare, when we contrast? What happens when we contrast? Well, here's something really incredible. In Egypt, only the king is the image of God. But here we see that all humanity is the image of God. Get a load of that. The covenant relationship between God and man is not restricted to some elite sector within society. All right, that's so we've looked at the similarities. We've looked at the differences. Now we're going to look at the precise meaning of the prepositions in and as or according to. In Hebrew, this is just one letter. So the word in is the letter B, and the, the preposition as or according to is the letter K. That's why Jesus said not one jot or tittle will fall, because you have to pay attention to these things. All right, in Genesis 1.26, we have a sentence. Let us make man A in our image, and be according to our likeness. Those two prepositional sentence phrases are, technically speaking, not necessary because the sentence would be a complete sentence without them. So we could say, we could say, let us make man. That's a complete sentence. Subject, verb, object. But he goes on to tell us two things that aren't necessary, at least from a grammatical point of view, that being, that were made in the image and according to the likeness. What is the exact value of each preposition? Uh, we could go to page 27, Chris. Thank you. The phrase, made in his image, has been understood in two different ways. First, the in has been interpreted to indicate the norm or standard. This is the usual this is the normal use of the preposition in when it follows the verb to make. The statement that man is created in the image of God would then mean that man conforms to a representation of God. So there, there's God, there's a representation of God, and that man conforms to this representation. Now this suggests that man is a copy of something that had the divine image, not necessarily a copy of God himself. The traditional view, however, does not do full justice to the meaning of the words image and likeness, 
nor does this explanation account for the fact that the prepositions seem, notice the word seem, to be somewhat interchangeable. So in 126, we have in our image, according to our likeness, in his image, in the image of God, in the likeness of God. So there you have the in with likeness. Do you see that? In his likeness, according to his image. So now they're reversed. And then we have in the image of God. It is possible to use in with likeness as well as image. And Genesis 5.3 has exactly the reverse. One scholar, Wenham, he says that the expression made in the pattern in Exodus 25 verse 40 is made according to the pattern in 25 verse 9. The best explanation has come from James Barr, and he has shrewdly observed that the preposition in, when it's combined with words like funk, like image or likeness, is thereby brought to have almost the same effect as the preposition as. It is the semantics or meaning of the noun, not those of the preposition alone, which are decisive here. So when the verb make is followed by in, because it is used with nouns indicating likeness, the in likewise receives by this fact a value almost identical to as. This makes the expression in Genesis 1.26 differ from the example in Exodus 25 verse 9. It is possible then that the preposition in could be translated as in Genesis 1, that God made man as his image. God, in fact, did create man as his image. Humans do not conform to a representation of God. They are the divine image. This interpretation is supported by the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11:7, Paul says that man is the image of God. I like to know when I'm interpreting the Old Testament that I'm interpreting it the way Jesus and the apostles do. Otherwise, I don't have a Christian interpretation. I have some kind of interpretation, but I'm not a Christian one. Why then is the statement in Genesis not more forthright in explicitly saying that man is the image of God? If Moses meant that man is the image of God, why didn't he just say that? Well, I believe that he expressed it in a slightly more subtle way to avoid idolatry. A more indirect expression is used in the cultural and linguistic setting of the ancient Near East to prevent man from being considered an idol and worshipped as such. In spite of the fact that the two prepositions are close in meaning, we must not assume that the meaning is identical. This is where you have to pay attention and not fall asleep. Uh, and there's a German scholar who has analyzed, there are 15,000 uh, uses of the word in in the Old Testament, 5,000 occurrences of the word of the preposition uh, as, and 20,000 of the one, two, or four. And he has exhaustively and exhaustively, in a very exhausting way, studied these. As stands between the opposition pair in that marks an equating relation and to which marks a non-equating relation. What does all that gibberish mean? It means that in indicates something close and near in likeness, while as indicates something similar but distant 
and separate. We have already seen that, although the words image and likeness share similar meanings, each has a different emphasis. In the Telfecaria inscription, the word likeness focuses on the king as a suppliant and worshiper of his God and communicates sonship. The word image focuses on the majesty and power of the king in relation to his subjects. These ancient Near Eastern data confirm and correspond to what we see in the Bible. The the word likeness in Genesis is closely associated with the creation of the human race, human genealogy, and sonship. It occurs in Genesis 1.26 in the creation of humans, and again in 5.1, when this is recapitulated under the heading Birth History of Humankind. The third use is in 5.3 with the generation or creation of Seth. The word image is consistently used of representing God in terms of royal rule. So if we put all of this together, now simply, I'm summarizing so you can wake up. Humans closely represent God in image that is, they represent his rule in the world. Humans are also similar to God in performing the action of creating life, but not in the same way. So we cre- uh, uh, Eve said, I created a man-child with the help of the Lord, but uh, not, this was not at all like the way God made people, by just speaking, and things happened. So we are similar... We, do, we are close to God and near to God in representing his rule, but we're similar but not quite the same in, in the act of creation. And this interpretation actually explains the reversal of the prepositions in chapter 5, verse 3. Seth shares precisely in the, moderation, in the matter of generation and sonship, but is only similar and not identical in the representation of his father's image. He probably looked a little bit like his mother, too. <clears throat> Summary. Let's bring all of this together. Genesis 1, verse 26, defines a divine human relationship with two dimensions, one vertical and one horizontal. It defines our human being, ontology, in terms of a covenant relationship between God and man And second, it defines a covenant relationship between humans and the rest of the creation. The relationship between humans and God is best captured by the term sonship. The relationship between humans and the creation may be expressed by the terms kingship and servanthood, or better, servant kingship. This interpretation best honors the normal meaning of the word image according to the cultural and linguistic setting. One scholar put it this way, in the ancient Near East, the setting up of the king's statue was was equivalent to proclaiming his rule over the sphere in which the statue was erected. So when in the 13th century BC, Pharaoh Ramses II had his image hewn out of rock at the mouth of the river on the Mediterranean north of Beirut, the image meant that he was the ruler of this area. So in exactly the same way, God put his statue in the middle of creation to show that he is a Lord over this world. He, man is the evidence that God is the Lord of creation, but as God's steward, he also exerts his rule, fulfilling his task, not in arbitrary despotism, but as a responsible agent. 
Our rule and our duty to rule are not autonomous. They are copies. Thus, the image is physical, but it goes far beyond the physical. Don't worry, I will get done on time. It is important to note that this definition of the divine image is not merely functional, but also ontological. That is, it has to do with our being. As, as Wenham points out, the phrase in the image describes the product rather than the process of creation, as suggested by Genesis 5.3 and Exodus 25.40. The grammar reveals that we rule as the result of being made in the, as the divine image. Ruling is not the essence of the divine image, but we rule because we are the divine image. So people who define the image merely in functional terms are in error, in my view. Humans, man, man is the divine image. As servant king and son of God, humans will mediate God's rule to the creation in the context of a covenant relationship with God on the one hand and the earth on the other. Hence, the kingdom of God is found on the first page of the Bible. Do you see that? God is going to rule, that's kingdom. How? Through a covenant relationship. You see that? Shows you how wise Jesus was because what was Jesus' message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. See that? He's bringing, he's going to restore what is there on the first page of the Bible. We should look to Jesus and the apostles as the best exegetes of the Old Testament. No wonder the Mosaic Covenant, which seeks to implement this in Abram's family, can be summarized as providing divine direction concerning a right relationship to God Two, how to treat each other in genuinely human ways. And two, three, how to be good stewards of the earth's resources. I have about eight minutes left. I want to do two things. I want to briefly summarize Genesis chapter 2. Remember how Hebrew literature works. You have a left speaker and then you have a right speaker, which is, by the way, why poetry... Hebrew poetry is based on couplets because that's the minimum version of the left and right speakers for a holographic idea. If you, if you read the book, you'll see that I show that the, that uh, God uh, creates the Garden of Eden in chapter two. He creates humans outside of the garden and places them inside the garden. Just not on. Okay. Um, the garden is pictured as a, as a sanctuary, as a temple, as a place of worship. Uh, you'll have to go to the book for the details. And Adam is pictured as a, as a priest, as a king and priest. We, when, what was Adam? Well, he was a gardener, right? And we think of gardeners as lowly jobs, but Nebuchadnezzar was a gardener. Remember that? The hanging gardens of Babylon? A gardener is a job for a king. Remember after the resurrection that they didn't recognize Jesus and Mary supposing him to be the gardener didn't realize that he was the gardener. He was the second man. 
Adam is pictured, if you read the book, as a king priest in a garden. What does this show us? How are we going to bring God's rule to this world? Well, I'm sure Adam got out his iPhone and uh, started to uh, get out his calendar and put, put jobs in there, right? This is, first I have to do this. This is how we work, isn't it? I wake up. Here's my to-do list for today, right? No, this is wrong. The first priority is worship. You get into the temple. You worship God. You spend time in God's presence. And you know what that does for you? It shows you what God is like. So when you go out into the world, you can actually rule like God rules because you know what he's like in the world. This idea will totally transform your Sunday worship when you realize that God is gathering his new humanity together for their greatest priority, getting to know him so that as we go out into the world, we can represent him in the world. The last five minutes, I just want to show how this actually goes through the rest of the Bible. So Adam is called to be an obedient son and a servant king. Well, it goes down the, it, it all goes down the toilet in the next chapter pretty fast. So what does God do? Well, things get pretty bad and he has to, he makes, he, he, he gives everybody a brand new start. He says, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wipe the slate clean. And that's, that's what we see in the flood. And what the flood story shows is even if we were to wipe the slate clean and give us a second chance, we're going to blow that too. Because chapter 9, with the story of the drunkenness of Noah, is really corresponding to Genesis 3. The human partner is unfaithful, and the whole story goes down the tubes pretty quickly, leading us to the Tower of Babel. So then God chooses one man and his family. Uh, by the way, Noah, as we saw, was picture, is actually pictured as a, he's, he's, he's an Adamic figure and he's also a priest. He offers sacrifices. Abraham and, uh, Adam are the only people that offer, Abraham and Noah are the only people that offer sacrifices in Genesis. So, uh, we have Abraham. Uh, he, God says, I'm now going to work with one person and with his family. And Abram is pictured as an obedient, he's pictured as a, as an obedient son and a servant king. He's never called a king, but he beats up kings. He's, he, he hobnobs with kings, uh, the king of Gerar, and uh, he's called a prince by the people that he buys, buys the cave from. And he wor- he's also a priest because he worships with an altar. So he's an Adamic figure, you see. And uh, then as the family becomes a huge nation, God calls the whole nation to be an obedient son and a servant king. That's what Exodus 19 is telling them, to be an obedient son and a servant king. And he makes the covenant to help them, enable them to do that. And the history of the Bible goes down the tubes pretty quickly. Uh, you get into uh, Judges, and it's all going down the tubes pretty quickly. And so then finally God makes a covenant with David, and he says, well, maybe the, maybe this won't happen through the nation as a whole, but maybe it could, maybe it will happen. It will, it will, I'm going to, I'm planning that it will happen through the king as the representative of that nation.
And that story seems headed for disaster until the prophets start speaking of a new covenant. Uh, and in the new covenant, not only will God be the faithful partner, but humans will be forgiven their sins and they will be faithful partners too. So now you know why uh, Jesus came to be an obedient son and a servant king because he, this is what's passed down through Noah, through Abraham, through Israel, through David. So you can see what Dr. Wellam was talking about. It's the sequence of covenants that controls your typology. And it's warranted in the text. Thanks very much for your kind attention.